BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Wow. Did you catch that speech last night that Joe Biden gave? For that matter, did you catch Tim Scott's speech? We'll talk about both of them. Professor Richard Wolf will be with us. We're going to ask him about the impact of Biden's Buy America plan. I'll give you some background on that. It's actually fascinating. And it's a piece of the Reagan administration's history that most people are just like unaware of. But first, I want to talk about last night's speech and, of course, get your thoughts on it, too. But number one, and I'll say this very quickly because I'm going to come back to it in great detail afterwards. This, in my opinion, I tweeted this last night. I I said this is the best presidential speech I've seen since uh, Jack Kennedy's inaugural address in 1961 on January 20th, 1961. It was, we have not had a Democratic president. Jimmy Carter came close to it when he talked about energy, but of course they just ripped him apart. But we have not had a president talk like this really since Lyndon Johnson and Medicare or Jack Kennedy proposing a national health care system saying, you know, other countries do this, why can't we? It's FDR, JFK, LBJ, We are back to Democrats being Democrats, at least in the White House. And that, to me, is just mind-bogglingly encouraging. And as I said, in a few minutes, I'm just going to go through all the details of what he's saying and how he's planning to pay for it and, and what it all is. But the Republican rebuttal was the thing that made me crazy. Uh, You know, Louise and I sat there and watched uh, Senator Tim Scott, the only black Republican senator in the United States Senate, and pitch this idea in his own words, quote, America is not a racist nation. Now, I get it that this is the official kind of Republican mantra. Uh, This is what John Roberts said when he gutted the Voting Rights Act. And what happened? Within weeks, actually in some cases within days, but mostly within weeks, States all over the South started putting into place laws that were federally illegal because of the Voting Rights Act that was passed unanimously in the Senate just a few years earlier, but had been gutted by the conservatives on the Supreme Court. That within weeks they were passing laws to make it harder for black people to vote. So, you know, America's not a racist nation. That was the sales pitch from the Supreme Court. That's the sales pitch from, from Republicans in Congress for everything from, you know, reparations on one end to, hey, let's just improve our schools or let's enforce the laws about employment on the other end. You know, there's all, it's just a pile of stuff there in the middle, obviously, that includes policing. But this, I mean, this is, this has been their sales pitch. And if it were true, it'd be wonderful. But in fact, it's a sad lie. It's a fantasy. I mean, just consider if America is not a racist nation, as Senator Tim Scott said last night, as as the official Republican rebuttal said last night, then why did we kill tens of millions of Native Americans? Why do we continue to hold their descendants in poverty? And why do we continue to steal their land? If we're not a racist nation, why are some of the most iconic buildings in Washington, D.C., including the one where the speech was held last night, built by enslaved black people? 
If we're not a racist nation, why was it in the why was it the law in the United States up until the 1960s that races had to be separated in everything, in housing, in education, in restaurants, in stores, walking down the street? If we're not a, ra a racist nation, why was it the law right up until the mid-1960s that immigrants into this country had to, had to have the same racial profile as this country? In other words, if, if we're 75% white, 75% of the immigrants coming in had to be white. Now, that changed during the, the Johnson administration, but now we have Republicans going, you know, <laughs> we need to go back to those old, those old immigration policies that we had. That's their idea of immigration reform. If we're not a racist nation, why is it that black people are killed disproportionately by police? I mean, seriously, when was the last time you heard a white guy say, I can't breathe, as he was having the life choked out of him by a cop? If we're not a racist nation, why is it that people with identifiably white or black names, when they are you know, with identical qualifications, and this has been done over and over and over again. I mean, numerous universities and other groups have, you know, for, for decades have been doing this. The most recent one of these we reported on just three months ago in this program, where they, where they, they take identical resumes, same college or equivalent college, same degree, equivalent degree, uh, everything's the same except one person has a name that really sounds black and one has a name that sounds really waspy. And they submit them to a thousand or ten thousand employers. And who gets the callbacks? The people with the white names. Who doesn't get the callbacks? The people with the black names. Same, by the way, with rental properties. If we're not a racist nation, why is the maggot movement almost entirely white? And why do they keep talking about starting a race war in America? If we're not a racist nation, why does the Justice Department say that the single most deadly terrorist threat in the United States is and has been for years? White racists. White supremacists. If we're not a racist nation, why did the President of the United States refer to a group of Trump-loving Nazis who were responding to a story that had been all over right-wing right media a couple of weeks earlier saying that George Soros, this billionaire Jewish guy who lives in Paris right now, that George Soros was using his money to ship black refugees into the United States. And so they went out in the, in the streets and they chanted, Jews will not replace us with black people, was the, you know, the rest of the sons. If we're not a racist nation, why did, why did Trump refer to those people as very fine people? If we're not a racist nation, why is it the schools in predominantly black neighborhoods don't perform as well as in, in white neighborhoods, even when they have white students in them? If we're not a racist nation, why is the average white family worth over $100,000 and the average black family is worth around $6,000? If we're not a racist nation, why is it that when on TV you see the occasional show where the hero, the good guy, the center of good is a black guy and the bad guy is a white guy and we're like, whoa, that's unusual. If we're not a racist nation, why do white guys keep walking into black churches and shooting people and then taking to Burger King? Why do white people keep calling the police on black people for walking, shopping, working, bird watching, attending school, mowing their lawn, caring for their own children, driving? When was the last time that you heard about white people being having the police called on them by black people and that the white people ended up dead or had their neck crushed by the cops? If we're not a racist nation, why are our billionaires and our business leaders almost entirely white? Well, it's true of the Republican Party as well. If we're not a racist nation, why are the Republicans working as hard as they can to keep black people from voting all over the country? This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
I mean, let's be honest about this. Your thoughts on all this after the break. And then I want to get into what Joe Biden proposed. Kevin in Cedar Lake, Indiana. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, thanks for uh, taking the call. I'm just going to reiterate what I've shared with you on a previous call about all of us having to dismantle the lie of race so that we can free ourselves from this septic, toxic fumes of, of supremacy. And until we understand that it was a fabrication, that it has no real truth to it, then, then we will constantly and forever be trapped in this stupid, uh, idiotic mindset that keeps us one from the other, you know, keeping people apart when we have our common humanity, uh, because everyone actually belongs to the same race. Everyone came out of Africa, <laughs> you know, and it's time that we all have to wake up to that reality. And I just needed to share that as a rebuttal to uh, Senator Scott's and as a reinforcement to your rant earlier in the program. Yeah, I don't disagree, Kevin. That said, it's going to take a lot more work than just saying, well, you know, white people are going to start being nice to black people. I mean, right, we, right. The, the, the white privilege is one dimension of a huge spectrum of privilege. Right. You have skinny person pl- privilege compared to fat person. You right. have attractive person privilege compared to unattractive person. And depending on age and gender, that's more or less consequential at different pl- you know, points in your life. You have form of speech, accent privilege versus disadvantage. I mean, there's, there's all these things that cause us to judge other people immediately in addition to race. And I'm not saying that we need to go through this punch list before we get to race. What I'm saying is that what we have to acknowledge is that race is the most obvious, the most pernicious, the most destructive of all of these. And then frankly, I think that we need to, this idea that we're all humans here needs to be expanded, (laughs) frankly. Although let's deal with race first. I agree with you, but if we don't start the conversation, then we we will be trapped for multiple generations, just as we've been trapped with multiple generations before of the same toxic lie. We have to expose it for the lie that it is. I don't disagree. And it's just... Somewhere and we have to start now. I just have to say, Kevin, I was just astonished last night watching Mm -hmm. Tim Scott. Yeah, um, me too. And literally not offering a single alternative I mean, it used to be that the Republicans said, hey, we've got some great ideas. If we just do trickle-down economics, if we get giant tax cuts for billionaires, every, excuse me, everyone's going to be more prosperous. And if we do away with the unions, everyone's going to have a bigger paycheck. Those yeah, were their big ideas back in the 80s. They don't, even have, they don't even pretend to have ideas anymore. <laughs> Trump had his big lie. Bush had his big lie. Both Bushes. Uh, Reagan had his big lie. And now we're, sign- we're starting to see that the big lie does not work for us. And I agree with you 100%. I just have to reiterate, let's begin this multi-generational task of destroying the lie of race. Then we can free ourselves. Yeah, yeah. well said, Kevin. Kevin, thank you. So that was, that's the thing that just baffles me. And, and number one, if I'm missing parts of my list, I just did this off the top of my head. You know, I did a rough draft last night as I was listening to Tim Scott's speech. And then when Louise and I got up at five o'clock this morning, you know, we went through and, you know, what are we missing here? And we just kind of added it all up and then, you know, put it on HartmanReport.com so everybody could read it. But I'm sure I'm missing something. You know, so if you have anything to add to that, you know, that demonstrates that Tim Scott's assertion that America is not a racist country is BS. I'd love to hear it. But let's move on to the more positive stuff. And that is what Joe Biden was actually proposing. Now that he knows or he believes that the Senate parliamentarian is going to let them pass big pieces of legislation that involve taxing and spending, 
by amending the first reconciliation bill, which, by the way, had Republican support for, I believe it had Republican support. Maybe it didn't, actually. Actually, the ones during when Trump was president, they had Republican support. Biden's didn't, now now that I recall. But in any case, amending that reconciliation bill. Reconciliation means it can't be filibustered and it can't be filibustered because it has to do with, you know, spending and raising taxes or borrowing money. It has to do with cash. So we have the first almost $2 trillion in the American rescue package, the COVID rescue package. Well, he's adding two more large programs to that, right? One of them, one of them is uh, his so-called infrastructure plan, which will, and I don't mean so-called in a negative way. Um, it, it's just <laughs> Republicans are saying, oh, no, it's not. Yes, it is. Anyhow, that's $2.3 trillion. And his family's plan, which is $1.8 trillion. So we will have three separate pieces of legislation. The first has already passed by reconciliation. The second and third can be amended to the one that have already passed by reconciliation. And he doesn't need any Republican votes to make these happen. He is going to need the votes of some of the so-called conservative Democrats. Now, I realize conservative Democrat is an oxymoron. I generally prefer to call them you know, Democrats who take corporate money or wholly owned Democrats or, Demo- you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema. With Cinema, I, I, I'm starting to wonder if there's even maybe an element of mental instability. I just don't get her. With Joe Manchin, I realize he's doing this real delicate dance. He's, you know, he's got a state that went 30, 40 percent for Donald Trump. And he loves being on Fox News and they put him on all the time. And so he's, he's got to figure out a way to kind of thread that needle. And maybe he'll pull it off. I mean, that was essentially what Joe Biden said last night in the interview that he did with, I believe it was NBC, before the State of the Union address, or, or the, the address. It was a not State of the Union address, the first, you know, joint congressional address. And basically what he said was, you know, hey, they want to negotiate Republicans? Good luck. Let's see what they can do. And of course, you know, they're going to get their nose bloody. You know, they're, they're, they're just going to get kicked back in the, in the teeth. But basically, this is $4 trillion of additional spending. And at least $2 trillion of it is going to be paid for, very simply, by taking the capital gains tax back to where it was when Donald Trump came into office, which, by the way, was much lower than where it was when George W. Bush came into office. But anyhow, taking it back to where it was when Trump came into office and giving the IRS $80 billion so they can go out and collect a half a trillion or a trillion dollars from the top 1% on average are hiding 21% of their income. The rest of us don't even have the ability to do that. Our income gets reported you know, every week to the IRS by our employers. But hey, if you're rich, you can hide your money. So he's gonna give them the cash to do that. This would be a tax credits for universal pre-kindergarten, airport upgrades, broadband rollouts, all kinds of stuff. I mean, the, the infrastructure plan was buildings and utilities and transportation, in-home care and jobs. And the families plan tax credits, boosting the IRS, child and family support and education. That's, those are the basic things. I thought one of the most important things that Joe Biden said last night that was virtually never mentioned was that he knew President Xi. He spent hours and hours and hours with President Xi. He had had this conversation with President Xi of China over and over and over again, where Xi said, you guys in America will never succeed. We will always beat you because we're authoritarian and we can simply make decisions. We don't have to run, we don't have to vote. We don't have to, we don't have to care what the people say. And Biden says, no, You're that's wrong. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And I agree with Biden. I think he's wrong. I think that Xi is wrong. I mean, time will tell, obviously, but I think it's been more Republican obstructionism than anything else. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR 
into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Tom Hartman here with you. It is the, uh, by the way, the 88th birthday of Willie Nelson. One of the uh, one of the two literary high points in my life. The first was when Gore Vidal, in the last chapter of his autobiography, Point to Point Navigation, named me several times as the guy, along with my writing partner, Lamar Waldron, who finally, in Gore Vidal's opinion, solved the JFK assassination. Gore Vidal, of course, was a very close friend of JFK's and of many members of his family. And JFK's lawyer agreed with us on this. But the, the other one was when Willie Nelson wrote his uh, autobiography. I think it was called Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I'm Gone, or <laughs> words to that effect. And he talked about being in the bus, smoking some pot, driving down the street, listening to Tom Hartman on Sirius XM. And I was like, whoa, I've made the big time, Willie Nelson. <laughs> so anyhow, it's his 88th birthday. Willie, if you're listening, happy birthday. I just you know, just wanted to say hi. So, you know, your thoughts on, on what Tim Scott said or might have not, maybe should have said or might not have said. But and, and more importantly, I think, you know, the real issue here is that Joe Biden is finally talking like a Democrat. Thank God. I mean, we've got Democrats once again talking like Democrats, government. In fact, he came right out and said trickle down economics doesn't work. I have been saying this for, what, 18 years on this program, almost every week? And I haven't had a, a Democratic president agree with me yet until, until now. It's like, I've got to tell you, I am so enthusiastic. I am so positive about You know, I realize we didn't get everything we wanted, right? He didn't come out and say, oh, it's time for Medicare for all or lower the retirement age to 50. I mean, you know, there's big stuff that he didn't do. If he can get this smaller stuff, and I, $4 trillion is not really smaller stuff, but if he can get this stuff that the American people really love, 85% of the people, according to CBS News, 85% of the people who heard that speech last night said, yes! If he can get these things done, and he can get them done quickly, then the much bigger stuff is going to be a hell of a lot easier, because he will have momentum. So, you know, if you're going to call and say, but Tom, he didn't say I want Medicare for all tomorrow morning. You know, I'll probably treat you nicely, but I'll move along quickly because, like I said, A, you're never going to get everything you want from anybody. But B, we got a lot last night. I mean, Bernie Sanders could have given that speech, at least 80% of it. So, what say you? Steve in Polesboro, Washington. Hey, Steve, what's up? Well, I was calling about his changes to the tax, uh, his giving money to the IRS for the, mm-hmm. uh, to pursue illegal tax shelters. And there's right. The IRS is that. down to like 8,000 auditors now. They were up to 20,000 at one point. The last time we were at 8,000 auditors, I think, was 1956, when yeah. you know our population was a third of what it is right now, and, the, and we had no billionaires at all. So, yeah. Yeah, Credit Suisse, you know, is under investigation again. They've been, you know, in, they were busted in 2014 for um, helping people shelter 
money overseas, and now an insider is saying they've still been doing it. Isn't that a surprise? Mm. And I think that's good to be cracking down on the illegal tax shelters. But I think more important would be if we would go back and look at a bunch of these exotic, weird, and uh, legal tax shelters. You know, uh, nobody said anything about uh, carried interest for a long time. And that's a huge loophole. But how greedy can you get? it isn't enough that people these, are these to are going to require legislative solutions. Yes. I mean, his and, his and his throwing money into the IRS, he can do that, you know, with with a, an executive order. But changing the tax codes so that uh, hedge fund managers and uh, private equity people like Mitt Romney don't. Uh, you know, pay pay almost nothing in taxes and make massive profits, unlike pretty much anybody else in any other business. That's going to be tough because those people throw a lot of money around in politics. But yeah, but I you know I think he's calling them out. Yeah, well I hope so. And you know I mean, we talked about a seventy um, billion dollar tax gap. Well, the tax abuses in shelters are five times that. You know, we're talking about oh, at least. And a half, yeah, a trillion dollars. And I mean, yeah. it starts with carried interest. Then, you know, they ask people like me, how can I avoid inheritance tax on carried interest? Well, first there was vertical slice. Then they've mm. brought it now down to the point where they're using private derivative contract alternatives to be able to structure whatever they want to avoid the inheritance tax on your yeah. um, carried interest. I mean, these things are so exotic and weird that we should be able to point them, pin them out, and outlaw them. Yeah, well, if he wants to pay for these programs, Steve, and and I think he does, he's going to have to start doing that. Steve, brilliant. Thank you very much for pointing it all out. Norm in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Norm, what's up? Hey, how you doing there, Tom? Well, Tom, you know, I heard the president's speech yesterday, and there are several things I didn't hear, okay? He heard that he talked about white racism being part of terrorism. And he also said, I like the part where he said about trickle-down economics doesn't work. But in terms of white racism being terrorism, I didn't hear him say anything about the war on drugs. And if anything could be more terrorizing is this war on drugs, which has been specifically used to target black folk and the black intellect by Richard Nixon. And it continues today. And it continues in the same Justice Department and the same uh, drug enforcement agency. Now, I know you love to. I got to give you a little pushback on about the Sackler family, because I know you talk about how bad these Sacklers were. But, Tom, if we're going to talk about the Sacklers, we need to talk about the Roosevelt's and the Delano's and the Russell folks who engaged in the opium wars on China, because these guys were far more worse than what the Sacklers ever did. Yeah, but they're all dead right now, Norm, and and there's nothing that that Joe Biden's going to do legislatively about that. But, but you know, I didn't hear him specifically talk about the war on drugs last night, but he has been talking about that. His administration has been talking about that a lot in the last couple of weeks. So, you know, I think that I think we're going to get there and I'm not real, real worried about that. Uh, your point is well taken, but I think we're going to get there. David and Cersei are Arkansas. Excuse me. Hey, David, what's up? Yes, um, last night during the president's speech was I thought was just fantastic. He mentioned overseas bank accounts in Switzerland and the Cayman Islands. Mm-hmm. Now, the money, the, the number that he mentioned was, I believe, eight hundred billion. And a couple of times, I called in when you had uh, Representative Mark Pocan on one time, and I asked about this. You, on your show, had sometime mentioned $7 trillion that is over these mm-hmm. Well, which number's true, and exactly where is this $7 trillion? Is it drug cartels, overseas bank accounts, just been hidden away? I, I I'd like to know well, first of all, David, nobody knows for sure. There's there's a lot of speculation. And I, I generally speaking on issues like this, I take my data from the Financial Times or from the Economic Policy Institute. But my understanding is that it's a little less than a trillion dollars a year, which is probably where that $800 billion number is coming from. It's probably an annual number of money that gets shipped out of the United States and stashed. And the $7 trillion 
is the amount that, you know, they, that basically they have stashed overseas in the last decade, more or less. There's also another $7 trillion number, which is the amount that has been removed out of the wealth and pockets of the American working class and middle class and put into the money bins of the top 1%. So there may be, uh, maybe we're confusing numbers here because I've seen numbers as high as $10 trillion in the estimate of what rich people are stashing overseas and as high as $15 trillion when you add in what corporations are stashing overseas. I mean, you got 50 major corporations, as Joe Biden pointed out, that showed tens, hundreds of billions of dollars in profits and paid no taxes. They did a lot of that by stashing that money in, you know, Apple is now an Irish company, right? For example, or at least they were. Well, the, the difficulty on bringing that money back, is it just insurmountable or is there a way to get it back? Yeah, it's just a matter of changing the tax law, David. You know, you had rich people buy politicians to write these loopholes into this tax law. And now, hopefully, now that Biden needs some cash, he'll start calling out those politicians. Some of them are Democrats, most of them are Republicans, but hey, it's right across the board. It's time to start calling them out and saying, no, we're going to reverse these insane 40 years worth of tax policies. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. There's a reason why there are, you know, multiples more lobbyists in Washington, D.C. than there are legislators. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Book Club. Today we're reading from Point to Point Navigation, a memoir by Gore Vidal. This is from the last two chapters, and we're reading from page 258. In 1961, a new president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, was inaugurated at the age of 43. With him, a new generation had taken the crown from the older generation as represented by General Eisenhower. There was triumphant talk of a new frontier, presumably to be crossed by all of us into a bright new land where the only shadow that marred the prospect was that of the hideous, murderous specter of international communism centered upon the Soviet Union against whom JFK had sworn to bear any burden to ensure the ultimate victory of freedom, liberty, and so on. But early on, starting in 1959, under the general direction of then-Vice President Richard Nixon, who had many interesting Cuban mob connections, yes, B.B. Rebozo, his mysterious friend, was also linked not only to mobsters, but to the Cuban dictator Batista, who had been overthrown by Fidel Castro to the annoyance of the mob, an annoyance that turned to fury when Castro shut down, if only briefly, the mafia-run Havana casinos. Elements of the CIA were soon attempting to murder Castro, who, like all Nixon enemies, was, if not yet a communist, worst a communist dupe. The presidential election of 1960 was a close one fought by Nixon and John Kennedy, an attractive Massachusetts senator whose father had, ironically, dealings with many mobsters during the pre-World War II period, as well as at the time of the prohibition of alcohol. The late film producer Ray Stark told me how, during the short presidency of JFK, Joe Kennedy and Frank Costello, the retired New York mob overlord, would often have dinner at Kennedy's Central Park South apartment and rehash old crimes, often in the country of a retired teamster who gave great massages. Joe's mob connections were useful to Jack in the 1960 election and could easily have saved JFK's life in 1963 had Bobby Kennedy, in the interest of building himself up in the public eyes, not started arresting important mobsters, particularly in the so-called Appalachian Mob Conference bust, where they had all come together to confer about the secession of the leadership of the New York mob. I've long since forgotten how I first heard of the plot to kill JFK. While I had no idea at all of the Kennedy brothers' plot to kill Castro on December 1st, 1963, until I read a recent book by Lamar Waldron and Tom Hartman called Ultimate Sacrifice. It was assumed that the Cuban Missile Crisis of 62 had sufficiently alarmed JFK and Castro's mentor Khrushchev so that they jointly backed down, putting an end, so everyone thought, to such dangerous adventures. JFK had pledged not to invade Cuba if Castro would allow inspections of any remaining missiles on the island. Since Castro did not cooperate, JFK then regarded his pledge as inoperative. In the spring of 1963, according to Ultimate Sacrifice, more a literal than an ironic title, John and, quote, John and Robert Kennedy started laying the groundwork for a coup against Fidel Castro that would eventually be set for what they called C-Day, December 1st, 1963. 
Bob Eadle, like Nixon before him, was in charge of what would be the most secretive operation of its sort in our history. Since the CIA had, in the eyes of the Kennedys, botched the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, the Department of Defense was to be in charge of this adventure, which would first engage mob hitmen to assassinate Castro and then replace Castro with a provisional government that would implore the United States to come to its aid and restore order. Ours is a society riddled with plots of every kind, from, let's say, one to bribe certain members of Congress to cheat Indians off of their casino money, to the financing often secretly of numerous presidential elections, while simultaneously great companies like Enron cheat customers, stockholders, and employees. Yet everyone who draws attention to all of this corruption is quickly denounced as a conspiracy theorist who means to undo the great fiction that anything truly wicked, at least in the murder line, must be the work of a solitary lone nut who is simply evil. Hence the setting up of Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone crazed killer of JFK, Despite his own brief but presumably accurate statement after his Dallas arrest, I'm the patsy. Then, as planned, his being gunned down by Jack Ruby, a fellow CIA asset. Oswald, as lone killer, for no reason at all, and an addled Ruby, a one-time Chicago mobster who claimed to be deeply worried about the stress all this must be causing the widow Kennedy. And he goes on in Chapter 55. Ultimate Sacrifice describes how the Kennedy's C-Day plan was penetrated by three mafia godfathers, Carlos Marcello, New Orleans, Santo Traficante, Tampa, Florida, and Johnny Roselli out of Chicago. All three were being vigorously pursued by Attorney General Robert Kennedy, along with a dozen of their associates, of whom six were also working on the Castro murder case. The crime bosses then used parts of the C-Plan, a.k.a. AM World, to arrange JFK's assassination in a way that would prevent a thorough government investigation. In order to protect the coup plan, its participants, as well as, naturally, national security by invoking the secrecy surrounding the C-Plan. The mob bosses targeted JFK twice before Dallas, once in Chicago on November 2nd, JFK called off his motorcade, and then in Tampa on November 18th, he survived unscathed. Ultimate Sacrifice reveals and details why Robert Kennedy later told several close associates the name of the godfather, Carlos Marcello, who had ordered his brother killed. But he couldn't do anything about it for fear the Soviets might go to war. Ironic and tragic action. I recalled when over the years I'd asked why that what happened at Dallas happened, I'd answer because Bobby had broken a truce made with a mob by Joe Kennedy in 1960. The book, Point to Point Navigation by Gore Vidal. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And welcome back. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's up? Yeah, I know about Tom, prophet, truth, justice, democracy in the American way. You forgot one list from Senator Scott. I was shaking mm-hmm. my hand when the Republicans sent a black person to tell us America is now racist. The one thing you forgot, that he was not allowed to the Senate office because they didn't believe that he was a senator. I don't know if you remember that. He was a reporter on the Hill that a Capitol Police office didn't let him into his office because he did not believe that. Oh, yeah, that in the very beginning. Senator. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, yeah, you should have added that to the list. But uh, but yeah. I'm very impressed with the speech, and I think it's a speech of a president who has a plan. And and the reason why he talked about trickle-down economy, because I think Joe Biden was listening to Tom Harmon's show. And the one thing that we're forgetting on this, this is the work of the Progressive Caucus. You know, the Biden bill, that's the work of the Progressive Caucus. You know, shifting Joe Biden to the speech that he to become a Democrat is the work of the Progressive Caucus. So if anybody we need to credit is, is Mark Pocan and Congressman Jalala, but I might be mispronouncing her name, and, 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 and Ro Connor, Connor. But those are the people who work behind the scene, and we don't see that, you know, to try to get this president to be the president of the American people. And I do agree with you that a lot of things need to be pushed through quickly, because within two years, we don't know what we, what's, what's going to happen. You know, and, and my question to you, you know, in 2010, Obama held on to health care as his ticket to get reelected. In your opinion, mm. perspective, what does Biden need to do? What does he need to pass so he will get reelected? Because I want to see him get reelected. My opinion, the infrastructure bill, but I just want to get your perspective. Thank you so much. Yeah, I agree with you, Omar. I think that these two pieces of legislation that he outlined that presumably can both be done by reconciliation and will have such benefits for states like Arizona and West Virginia that hopefully Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and anybody else who's reluctant on the Democratic side will go along with them anyway. 
I think that's his best re-election plan. I really do. I, it, it, very straightforward. That said, it's going to be hard to get re-elected when Republicans make it hard to vote, particularly for people in big cities, particularly for people who live in black neighborhoods, particularly for people who are college students, particularly people who are retired and interested in voting, uh, you know, Social Security and Medicare issues. As long as Republicans make it hard for those people to vote, it's going to be a real challenge, you know, in 2022 to get Democrats to hold the Senate and maybe even expand our percentages there. And it's going to be an even bigger challenge in 2024, particularly if Kamala Harris, keep in mind 2024, Joe Biden's going to be 81 years old, maybe 82, that if Kamala Harris is the nominee, not just the first, I mean, you know, Barack Obama was the first person of color. She would be the first woman of color. It's going to be a, a real lift. And she's going to have to have some real accomplishments and she's going to have to have a lot of support behind her. And Joe Biden so far has been really good at providing that. And the rest of us need to be pointing out her role in all these things as well and raise her profile. I'm guessing that's going to happen over the next year or so. Tom Hartman here with you, Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, your thoughts? Papa Joe got down last night, Professor. He got down. You will never Indeed. hear a U.S. president talk the way Papa Joe talked last night. He made reference to things that no U.S. president is going to talk about. Who's going to talk about white nationalism? And uh, you had an earlier call said that they were listening to your program. Well, Papa Joe's been listening to Ralph Nader because Ralph Nader said you have got to invest in the Internal Revenue Service so we can start collecting some of these taxes from some of these billionaires because they ain't got the forces to go after them. I think so it goes Papa beyond Joe's both, Morris. I don't think he's listening to me or Ralph Nader. I think that the truth is starting to come out. We have been living with Republican lies and fantasies for 40 years that if you just make the rich richer and the country will prosper and the, and the job creators will invest and all this kind of BS. And the truth is now coming out. And I, you know, I, I would love to take credit for it. I've been saying these things for 18 years on this program. But frankly, I think I've just been speaking the truth that it's finally starting to sink in with a lot of Democrats. Back to you, Morris. Well, you can go ahead and be humble if you want to, my brother. Everybody got to get the news and information from somewhere, and the intelligent people get it from folks like you and KPFK. Well, Papa Joe got down last night. And by the way, we got a new political party in the United States. It's called the Insurrectionist Party. Thank you, my brother. Okay. Thank, thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's always great to hear from you, Morris. Maurice in Germany. Hey, Maurice, thanks for watching us on YouTube uh, on the other side of the pond. Your thoughts? Hi, Tom. Good to talk to you. I've lived in Thank Berlin, you. Germany for 20 years. I've been a lifelong Democrat. I moved here in 2000. And mm -hmm. I have really, at first I was hesitant on uh, Joe Biden, but I'm 100% behind that man right now. Yeah, me too. That's wonderful. So I'm curious, Maurice, you, you live in Germany. You're obviously an American, but uh, if you've lived there 20 years, your German's got to be a lot more fluent than mine. What have you talked with any Germans, uh, you know, who might have had an opportunity to hear Biden's speech or at least read about it and learn about it? What, how is how is Europe uh, uh, generally uh, and Germany specifically reacting? I wish I had talked to somebody about it, but uh, as far as I know, most of the Germans are kind of sitting back and looking to say, what's going on in America? Yeah. Well, after Trump, you've, you've got you've to understand that they would have a lot of skepticism and, and a lot of concern. But, well, yeah, that's very, very, true. very good. When I first came to Germany, it was just to stay for a visit and... Uh, George Bush was in office, and I just couldn't stand him, so I decided to stay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a beautiful country. It is a beautiful country and an ancient culture, and uh, and That's some great. great people there. Maurice, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you, and thank you for watching us in Germany on YouTube. James in Chicago. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Hey there, Tom. Are you sure that wasn't Bernie Sanders who gave that speech last night? Ooh, Joe Biden <laughs> got down. He got down. You know, I liked everything about the speech, and, and, and uh, did you hear the part there? And what I like also, Tom, this guy is going to negotiate from the left of center, not mm -hmm. from the center born right. You know what? I like that part where he said, because initially I think Joe Manchin wants to take the tax bracket to uh, 
21 percent and uh 25 negotiate, yeah. yeah joe's gonna negotiate from the 28 but what did joe say i want to take it back up to what number did he say 39 percent yeah Mm-hmm. So that was strong. Now, that's what we call negotiating, right, Tom? When you carry it up yes. and bring it back down, not no yes. star at the center and go to the right. This man yeah, is real, Tom. And we were, were all Bernieites, but I'm behind this man. Yeah, me too. I mean, we've been watching Democrats for years uh, negotiate by starting out with a compromise and then compromising even more. And uh, Joe Biden is not doing that. God bless him. Thank you, James. Dan in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Dan, what's up? Hey, Tom. Well, I just wanted to push back just a little bit. I'm a millennial. I'm 35 years old. I'm 36. And we have been given a line of, uh, how should I say this, crap our whole life. Just gaslighting, you know, lie to. And I just want to just make sure everybody stays grounded. You can say all you want. You know, he could say that, you, you know, everybody deserves a million dollars and you have people, you know, <laughs> dancing around, being all happy about it until we can get legislation done. I don't care what he says. And and it, I think it might just be, you know, me being a millennial and just, you know, being fed a lot of crap our whole life. And, you know, OK, well, Dan, do, do something to help make that legislation happen. I mean, you're in Pennsylvania. You've got two senators. Call Pat Toomey and uh, whoever your other senator is. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not dip my tongue. Call your, call your, call your representative. You know, raise some hell. Join, join Indivisible. There's a lot you can do to help make this legislation happen. I totally understand what you're saying. Totally understand it. And talk is cheap. And legislation is tough. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So let's do an economic reality check here. Professor Richard Wolff is on the line with us, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author of numerous books. His latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also available as an e-book. Democracyatwork.info and rdwolf2fs.com are his websites. You can tweet him at profwolf with two Fs. And uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. So glad to have you with us. My question has to do with Joe Biden's speech. He talked about buying America. And my understanding of this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I may well be, I think I have this right, but my understanding of this is that in the 1930s, in the mid-1930s, Franklin Roosevelt passed a law called the Buy America Act, which directed all federal agencies to only buy from American suppliers. Now, there was a provision in there for emergency waivers in case you know the, the Navy needed to buy something really quick and there was no American supplier and they could buy it from a French company. But those waivers had to come from the executive branch. They had to come from the president or from the president via the Pentagon or whatever. And that that Buy America program, since the government is like 20% of our economy, that Buy America program really built and propelled American manufacturing right up until the 1980s. And then Ronald Reagan started handing out waivers on the Buy America program like they were candy. 
and every president has continued to do so and so as a result we can't build a cruise missile without parts from china and that essentially what joe biden was saying last night is he's going to start enforcing that law again he said in fact he turned to one of his uh, his one of his cabinet secretaries and said you know you're not going to get these waivers from me <laughs> you know <laughs> like like you've got them from from obama and from uh, trump and from well we could go all the way back to reagan i suppose you know bush reagan both bushes and clinton do i have that right number one and number two if he actually does this and imposes a buy america requirement on federal agencies what will the impact of that be okay i think uh, you get a, i don't know an a minus and mostly what you say is right but okay. i need to correct it with a with a couple of of qualifiers um, Please do like so. so many laws if and when they become uh, like a shoe that pinches your foot because it isn't the right size, uh, the interests that are hurt by this, for example, uh, a company that wants to buy a cheaper input abroad than what they would have to pay if they patronized an American supplier, they know how to go to the right officials, either in the Congress or in the executive branch, to get one of those waivers. So they have been pretty easy to get. And then if you put that together with a lack of enforcement, in fact, nobody in the federal government was all that busy checking up on whether federal officials, or for that matter, state and local officials, were observing the rules and the regulations here. So it, first of all, Mr. Biden would have to show us, which he hasn't done yet, that this enforcement he implies he's going to do is going to have any real bite to it. Other presidents have said more or less what he said, and the bites never materialized. That's number one. Number two, okay. the United States is a signatory to the World Trade Organization, and the World Trade Organization under pressure from the United States, has for years pressed other governments not to do what Mr. Biden wants to do here. Namely, earlier presidents wanted other countries to buy American if the American product was competitive in price and quality to what was produced locally in those other countries. In other words, we were supposed to have a regime of free trade where the company that had the best quality at the lowest price could win the contract anywhere. So it is going to strike the rest of the world very how shall I be polite now? Odd, um, I'll be very careful here, odd <laughs> that the United States, which for years pressed them not to give special preference to their own producers, is now about to do the same thing in a serious way and not merely lip service. And I think, to answer the last part of your question, the impact, if in fact Mr. Biden carries through the way other presidents simply haven't done, then you're going to see retaliation. You're going to see governments around the world that might have been equally loose uh, as the United States, as sort of the unwritten accommodation to what the United States was pushing the World Trade Organization to do, they're now going to re-examine their policies and close the United States out from being a, a competitor in their government purchases in each of those countries, and that's going to cost the United States. And you're going to see American companies screaming to Washington about contracts they lost in Europe or Asia or Latin America, using that to claim waivers, and we're, then we're back to square one. Hmm. Interesting. Is there a reasonable way to actually do what the goal of the program was? I, you know, uh, number one, that it doesn't have or it has very little impact, direct impact, on the private sector. You know, if, a, if an individual company wants to buy products from, from overseas. Well, I, one of the things I remember, in fact, this was back in the early 80s, as I recall, 
my dad worked in a tool and die shop in Michigan. And they went through a real rough time in the mid 80s and we were having a conversation one night and he said that they had this huge contract with the federal government. They were making precision parts, you know, a hundredth or ten thousandth of a micron or something, some incredible precision parts for the federal government. And an Italian company underbid them and the administration, and I think it was Reagan administration, um, provided a waiver so that the government agency could buy from the Italian company. And this like really hit this little 13 man, you know, tool and die shop badly. Is there a way to actually make this kind of a thing work? I mean, maybe with an international consensus? You'd have to have an international consensus for a while. The power, and this is the really important historical lesson here, Tom. For a while, the power of the United States coming out of World War II, for several decades after the 1940s, the power, the dominance of the United States, all of the competitors or potential competitors of the United States had been destroyed economically uh, during World War II, Europe, uh, China, Japan, so on. The United States was king of the hill, could pretty much dictate, and decided to be a champion of free trade because they knew that they were in a better position uh, to take advantage of a regime of free trade than anybody else, so that if the world became uh, had a consensus, as you put it, this would be basically to the advantage of the United States, which was in a better position to compete or outcompete everybody else. That, as I've been trying to argue, is over. The, the United States is not in that position anymore. It is a declining global power, not an ascending one. Uh, that role has passed to China, basically. That has to be dealt with. Uh, the rhetoric against the Chinese is not going to deal with it. But I think you're going to have to face that major accommodations are going to have to be made. And internationalism isn't working, but going it alone, every country, that's a very dangerous alternative as well. Yeah, well said. Professor Richard Wolff, The Economist, his most recent book, The Sickness is the System, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com. Professor Wolff, thank you. This thank you, Tom. Tom Hartman Program. Great talking with you. Let's see here, Reginald in Claremont, California. Hey, Reginald, what's on your mind? Hi, uh, Tom. Uh, good morning. How are you? I am well. What's up? Well, so I'm calling to um, talk about the Tim Scott uh, comment that um, America is not a racist country. And I heard your uh, response to that earlier in your show. And it, it concerned me because I believe that... Uh, it misinterprets what uh, Tim Scott was saying, at least as I understood it. He was actually, he wasn't saying that there's no racism in America, and you uh, appropriately identified multiple examples of racism in America, both past and present. Uh, what he was saying is that while there's racism in America, some of which actually affected his own family, it is not the type of racism that stops black Americans or any Americans really from still succeeding and he gave himself as an example and literally there are millions of black Americans who despite the racism take advantage of multiple opportunities which I argue are much greater than the racist acts that still exist and which is why so many people from all over the world still try to come here to succeed so I just think it's a little misleading and perhaps even disingenuous to describe what he was saying as in, in the pejorative way that I, I heard it coming out this morning. Hmm. Interesting thought. The argument that I'm trying to make is that America was birthed in racism. America became rich because of racism. America used racism as a political, social, and economic tool up until the 60s overtly and has since the 60s continue to. And I don't know how you can define a country that literally was founded on racism, that wrote into its founding document that black people were, were to be considered three-fifths of a person, 
and have absolutely no rights, how you could call that anything other than a racist nation. Okay, I understand what you're saying, but my point is that if this were truly a racist country, Joe Biden would not have given the speech that he gave last night, which was clearly uh, showing an attempt to eradicate the vestiges of racism that still exist in this country. So I just don't think that Tim Scott was being correctly interpreted. He even said that there's still vestiges of this racism that exists that have to be addressed. And he pointed to the uh, police uh, reform acts and all of that. But, yeah, I I just... My other objection, Reginald, if I may, real quickly, I'm I'm sorry, we just have 15 seconds. My other objection is that the Republican Party is using that phrase, particularly coming from a black man, to say, therefore, our racist voting policies are not really racist. Therefore, our support of things like redlining is not really racist. Therefore, you know, and, and therefore our policy of putting, you know, waste disposal sites near black neighborhoods is not really racist. That, that's my other concern. Reginald, I hear you, but I didn't hear Tim Scott say any of those things. No, I didn't hear him say those things, but you and I will both hear Republicans essentially quote him. I hear some do. Some do. You're right. Some do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Reginald, thank you. Thank you. You've softened at least (laughs) my rant. Thank you. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.